This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome to Spark My Muse, everybody. Today I have a returning guest. I'm so happy to welcome back Dr. Larita Coleman-Brown. She is going to be sharing some of her scholarship of Dr. Howard Thurman and some of his work. And you might remember that she was a guest earlier this year talking about her book, When the Heart Speaks, Listen. Thank you so much for coming back to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me back. I'm just so delighted to be here. I have been really appreciating Dr. Howard Thurman this whole last year and some of his books and also listening to some of his sermons, which are on archive at, I believe it's Boston College. Is that is that right? Did I get that right? Boston University. Boston University, right. Okay. And um, where he was the, the dean of the chapel there, and they have a great archive. And I know that you've done some work. Um, maybe you can introduce him to us a little bit and talk about some of the work that you've done. Sure. So Howard Washington Thurman is actually his his uh, proper name. It was a mystic prophet and theologian, um, and he's best known for writing the classic book, Jesus and the Disinherited, which inspired a number of people in the civil rights movement, particularly Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who is said to have carried the book with him every time he marched. Mm. So I like to refer to him, uh, Dr. Thurman, as the spiritual architect of the civil rights movement. But he actually, his life was was much broader than that. Um, and uh, one of the, the wonderful things about uh, being able to uh, talk about him is that he recently had a birthday on um, November 18th, um, because he was born on November 18th, 1899. So if he were still living, uh, he would have turned 120. (laughs) But he was born in uh, near West Palm Beach, Florida, but grew up in Daytona Beach, uh, Florida. And um, really was a very bright young child. He uh, lost his father at age seven. And... um, but uh, was sent to the Florida Baptist Academy in Jacksonville, Florida, for starting with the grade uh, ninth grade to high school and graduated valedictorian. And as a result, won a scholarship to Morehouse College in Atlanta, where he also graduated as valedictorian. They say that he read every book in the library that they had at the time, which is amazing. Um, and so he, although he, he, earned a degree in sociology and economics. He actually uh, enrolled in the Rochester, now called the Colgate-Rochester Theological Seminary, um, after he graduated and uh, spent three years there. Interestingly, he began his pastoral duties at the Mount Zion Baptist Church in Oberlin, Ohio, um, in June of 1926. And he one night got bored and decided that he was going to leave a meeting that he was attending. And as he walked out, he ran across a book called Finding the Trail of Life. Uh, This book was uh, written by the Quaker mystic Rufus Jones. And as he was reading it, he said, I must go study with this man. And so he found himself a way to study with Rufus Jones. He spent a semester with him at Haverford College. Um, And Rufus Jones is actually a noted Quaker philosopher, mystic, and pacifist. And he also mentored another uh, person, uh, Thomas Kelly, who has written a lovely book called A Testament to Devotion. So he, he was introduced uh, to Quaker mysticism as opposed to the traditional um, monastic uh, mysticism that I think a lot of people are associated with. Uh, He spent some time as a professor at Morehouse and Spelman, as well as Howard University. But in 1935, he was invited and he led a pilgrimage of friendship to India, Burma and Ceylon. Uh, He, along on that pilgrimage was his wife, Sue Bailey Thurman, and another couple, uh, Edward and Fanola Carroll. And they spent six months traveling around, um, speaking on a variety of different topics. Um, But towards the end of that time, he was able to sit down and meet for about three or four hours with Mahanda Gandhi. And they talked about nonviolence. They talked about um, civil disobedience. 
And it's really Thurman who brought those ideas back from um, India in the mid-1930s, which is remarkable. Um, He also had a a vision while he was there at Khyber Pass, which is uh, a pass where he was able to see some caravans going into Afghanistan. And he said he knew in that moment that he was one with all of those people and, and with everyone. And so uh, when he returned, he felt very called to co-found and become the pastor at the first intentional multiracial congregation, the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco, California. So that was founded in 1944. In 1949, he published, of course, his famous book, Jesus and the Disinherited. Um, And uh, it is a book that really uh, attempts to reinterpret Uh, uh, the New Testament in a way that shows how the Gospels can be uh, of importance to people who are uh, disinherited or dispossessed, as he calls the people who are on the the, uh, uh, outer skirts of normal society, um, or people who have what he calls their backs against the wall. Um, And it is a very inspiring book. And as I said, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. um, was able to read that book in seminary and was very excited uh, to then begin, uh, become active. He did leave uh, Fellowship Church in 1953. As you mentioned, he became the first African-American professor and dean of the Marsh Chapel at Boston University, which was a position that he held um, until he retired in 1965. And then, of course, after he retired, he moved back to San Francisco and did a lot of lecturing and uh, visiting around giving talks and sermons, and um, passed away there on April 10th in 1981. So this sort of gives you kind of like just a general um, outline of his life. What Gandhi was interested in knowing and what Dr. Thurman wound up speaking about is particularly poignant during the early parts of their visit to India, they were at a law school, um, and it was either the dean of the law school or um, a law professor who asked to speak to Thurman after his lecture. And he basically sat with him and said, what are you doing over here? You know, aren't you betraying all the darker peoples of the world by engaging in this religion? Um, that has enslaved your people and has oppressed your people. You know, this is, are you a fool? What is your problem? So Thurman basically was was, uh, very intrigued with the question. And he said, I actually, you know, am a Christian because I believe that Uh, The true genius of what Jesus was teaching is what was most important. And so I am a follower of the religion of Jesus. So he made a distinction between sort of traditional Christianity and the religion of Jesus. And he basically said, I think that in its truest form, it is something that is liberating to all people, regardless of whether or not you call yourself a Christian or not. So that conversation sort of got started there. But uh, when Gandhi and Thurman met, Gandhi was most interested in how did uh, African-Americans, they were known as coloreds then, how did they survive slavery? How did they, you know, what what was going on with respect to interracial marriage? What about voting rights? What were, you know, what were all the, the, you know, how did they survive all of this? And so Thurman basically gave him what we would call a good old Negro history lesson. (laughs) He told him about you know, what had happened and uh, what was happening at the time and some of the, you know, the still of the struggles of Jim Crow, particularly uh, for Southern uh, blacks, but, you know, all around the, all around the country. Um, and so he sort of brought uh, Gandhi up to date. Now, in turn, Gandhi said, well, then I don't understand why 
black people would become Christians because it's really only in the Muslim religion that when you're in, once you're in, you are equal, slave, master, and slave. So he said, and that's not true of any other religion. It's not true of Hinduism. It's not true of Buddhism. It's not true of Christianity, that there's got to be some kind of, uh, of, of religion where it, it would seem to be liberating as opposed to just continuing with the status quo. So Thurman basically, I think that was sort of a light bulb moment for Thurman because he wanted to then go back and exec- he had he had actually just written um, an essay just before he, he took sale uh, called Good News for the Underprivileged, where he argues that something happened and he suggests that Perhaps maybe it might have been Paul and his interpretation of what Jesus was saying, but that the religion as of Jesus, as he saw it, was very liberating because it basically said, you are a holy child of God and your worthiness has already been established by your birthright. There is no reason for you to think otherwise. However, you may find yourself in these situations where the more powerful other might cause you to fear fearful or to engage in deception or hypocrisy or to even begin to become bitter and hateful. But you must remember that God is the source of everything and that the most important thing that you can do is to live from that as opposed to, um, you know, feeling like you are not a person of worth in the world. So, so those were sort of slightly different conversations, but I think the, the, the bottom line in both was to be able to understand why Christianity would be even a religion that, um, you know, colored people at the time would even want to be participating in. Yeah, it's, it's a poignant question because Christianity had been weaponized. Uh, yes. And it, it's American Christianity in particular in this case, but... It's also he's Dr. Thurman's appealing to something much deeper, more truthful. Yes, I think a lot of times in the United States too, we we think we we stupid we stupidly think that American Christianity is Christianity, Um, and there are so many other types and forms and uh, you know deeper traditions that that aren't. set up in those types of ways but i'm yes. sure it it uh, was this pivotal moment for of, of re-examination yeah well so i think i mean he started thinking deeply about you know jesus god christianity as a very young child because when his father died his father was not really a religious man he was more of an intellectual man and so when he died, uh, the local church that his grandmother and mother went to did not want to preach his funeral because they said he was not, he didn't go to church. And so he died outside of Christ. And, you know, and so a visiting preacher basically uh, conducted his father's funeral, but then took the opportunity to condemn him to death. So he wanted to know, as a matter of fact, at the time, he had said he was never going back to church. But at the time, he was like, well, so what kind of religion is this? that condemn somebody to death just because they don't go to church. So that's, it was really then that he began to think about that. He began to think about his grandmother who used to, uh, who's illiterate and a former slave who uh, would, you know, have her read the Bible to him, but she wouldn't let him read some of the Pauline letters, you know, like those in which, you know, Paul is saying, you know, uh, slaves, you know, you should uh, obey your masters, et cetera. She would not even let him read those parts. And so he thought about that, you know, it's like, well, why is that? And I think, um, unfortunately, uh, you know, he kind of calls it a corruption of the missionary impulse, but, you know, Christianity was associated with imperialism. It was associated with colonialism. And it was like, well, so why would those people want to convert to Christianity? If in fact, you know, that is the religion of the person who is now occupying your country and oppressing you, right? So, but I think he's, he, what he wanted to do was to point out that the true genius of what Jesus was saying had been lost somewhere along the line. Yeah, and in 
his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, he talks exactly about how Jesus is born as an oppressed, impoverished person. Yes. Uh, he is on the receiving end of brutality by an oppressive regime. Yes. Yes. He was actually, you know, he was poor and he was born in a Roman occupied territory. And so he would have been equivalent to any person who is now considered to be disinherited or dispossessed. You know, he had no protection from the state. So if a soldier decided to uh, kick him into the gutter, he, you know, he couldn't fight that. And so you see elements of that even in the world today, right? That there are people who live on the margins of society and they don't really have protection. So he was he was really trying to speak to his own people. You know, Jesus wasn't preaching to the aristocracy. Yeah. He was preaching to his own people, right? right? Yeah. About here is how you can be liberated. You can be a freed spirit, even if you are not, um, you know, being supported or even if you are mistreated. You do not want to allow them first to penetrate your inner sanctuary, your inward center, and you do not want to allow them to have your spirit. If they know exactly what they can say to you to throw you off balance, then they have you. Mm. Mm. And so he was trying to give them another source to go to other than this other powerful other person. Mm. In terms of what Dr. Thurman's work has added to your own spiritual life or how it speaks into your growth and spiritual life, what are some of the the golden nuggets that you've kind of kept close? Yes. Well, so I think that one of the things that Thurman's work has done for me, because I really discovered it late, I had been doing lots of reading for many years, um, is first the contemplative aspects of it, the fact that you can um, center down, you can quiet your mind, you can go outside and, and experience the stillness, the peace, the presence of God. And while I'd had those experiences, I hadn't had someone else to say to me, this is my connection to God as well. Mm. So I was so delighted when I began to read uh, one of his books, Meditations of the Heart, uh, as well as his autobiography with Head and Heart, the autobiography of Howard Thurman, where he talks about having these, I guess Maslow would call them peak experiences. Some people call them mystical experiences. Other people call them unitive experiences, where you sort of feel like you are at one with the universe. You know, they don't happen frequently, but oftentimes they happen outside. So, uh, and I had had those experiences before, but I had not had another person kind of, you know, talk about it in the same sort of way. And I was like, oh, that's what I was feeling (laughs) when I was four years old sitting Mm -hmm. out in the wind, right? Mm -hmm. Now I have a name for that. So Mm. this idea about, you know, taking time for quiet and and trying to... uh, Turn down the inner chatter. You know, it, it's really based on that uh, famous Psalm uh, 46:10, "Be still and know that I am God." Well, the third definition of know is to experience. So you can begin to experience God when you decide to be still. Um, and you know, it's such a peaceful, wonderful feeling. So that was certainly one of the first things that I connected with. And I think that um, the second thing was, of course, having a different interpretation of Jesus, because I think many of us who, you know, call ourselves Christians have had some ambivalence at times, some uneasiness <laughs> at times, you know, about, well, this is not all adding up for me. But as you, when you go back and you read the Gospels and you, you know, begin to try to understand what was Jesus really talking about, it makes such a difference. So he brought attention um, to that. And then I think the other thing that has been wonderful is this idea that um, being able to utilize our spiritual resources more, right? I think sometimes we think we have to figure everything out. And he's got this notion of inner authority, Mm. which he talks a little bit about um, protecting our inner sanctuary and not letting other people's comments um, or their 
uh, ideas about who you are to, to in any way penetrate that inward center. So that's sort of like one side of the equation. But the other side of that equation is that when you begin to connect with spirit and yield to the guidance of the spirit, then you can exist in any kind of environment because the spirit's always guiding you about how to get through. Mm. You know, whether it's the desert or whether it's an oppressive life that you're living. And that to be connecting with that spirit, you now have inner authority. And I'm going to capitalize those words, inner authority. Mm. You're moving with inner authority throughout the world. It's very freeing mm-hmm. and um, very liberating and also very powerful because it's, it's not like you are trying to, to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. You are doing it with uh, the guidance of spirit or the, or the power of God. One of the nice things about Thurman was that he used to talk about how he prayed to God, but he talked to Jesus. Mm. You know, so he had a very intimate relationship with Jesus, you know, but he was very, very much in awe of the creator. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I know that often when I'm uh, doing spiritual direction or spiritual companion with people, I will ask them, who do you have your relationship with? Who? Who, who do you connect with most? Is mm. it with, you know, the creator? Is it with Jesus or is it with the spirit? Mm. You know, and people will give me different answers. But I know as a young child, I always had this sense. It was like this other part of me that was, you know, on occasion talking to me or saying something or whatever. And I now understand that that was this, that was my connection with the spirit. Oh. Right. Mm-hmm. And and so I. That, that was my first best buddy, if you know what I mean. Mm. <laughs> so I, I think that um, we have enormous spiritual resources and, and we, we are uh, invited to have more and more tools when we engage in a spiritual practice. You know, if we would just take 10 or 15 minutes a day and just cut out all the noise, you know, quiet down, I think we begin to, it's like exercise for your spirit, right? Mm -hmm. It's like you put in that little exercise and you begin to have, um, you be, things begin to happen. You start to pay attention to, I call them the, the holy coincidences or the sacred synchronicities that are happening in your life, you know, or you can pray and ask about something and you will get an answer. Mm. So, you know, we have uh, enormous spiritual tools available to us. And I think that what Thurman has done for me on my spiritual journey is is remind me of some of them that I, I, I didn't have names for and to to affirm others and to say, this should be a part of your life. You are part of the creation, holy creation. And, you know, it's important for you to to understand that and to make that part of who you are. I, I hope that wasn't too long. Of no, I, it's good. I, and I wanted to to go back and ask you a couple things to make it part of who you are to sort of walk in that truth is is Mm -hmm. what you're saying and I guess I wanted to ask you specifically when you talk about that inner authority would you be able to draw an example of something in your life where you've stepped into that or you've experienced that in a way that would be like a concrete example Absolutely. So uh, many years ago, I was living in Tennessee. I was teaching at the University of Tennessee. And I received an offer from Swarthmore College, which was on my short list of places to teach. Um, Very, very prestigious um, liberal arts college. But I didn't know whether or not I should take the offer. And so I went up in the Smoky Mountains. And I found by myself, and I found a little rock or log or something, and I sat on it. For a while, I said, I'm going to sit on this rock until I hear an answer from the inside. So I was utilizing nature and quiet at the same time and going and asking, not making the decision myself, but asking. So after about an hour and a half, or I don't know how long I was sitting there, it could have been 30 minutes, but nonetheless, I heard a no. And I was like, what? No, that doesn't make any sense. Just, why would I turn down an offer for a job? Uh, and uh, But I, 
I decided I'm going to go with that, right? So I turned down this job, didn't have any other offers and nothing, just. So about, I don't know, six, seven months later, I got a, a call from University of Colorado. And, um, you know, they said they wanted me to come out and interview. And so I did. And I got offered the job. Well, that's very nice. Right. But uh, I'd say about um, we fast forward about five years and I'm actually um, on the list to have a heart transplant. And um, I'm talking to the surgeon about, you know, the operation, how it's going to go. And so he says, well, I guess you're glad that you're living out here in Colorado. And I said, uh, yeah, why is that? He said, well, you know, if you were living on the East Coast, you might not make it because there are so many centers vying for the same organs. You know, a heart can't stay out of the body more than four hours. And so being out here in Colorado with, you know, I don't know, the next, I think at the time the next center might have been UCLA, um, you know, you are more likely to get a heart in a shorter amount of time. And in fact, they had predicted in Colorado because of accidents and, um, and my blood type and body size that I would probably get a heart within somewhere between two and four months. Mm. It actually ended up that it was four days. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And so that's an example of instead of making a decision myself, you know, a logical decision, the logical decision would have been take the job at Swarthmore. What? You know, (laughs) no brainer, right? Mm. But I decided to ask instead of making the decision myself. And what the spirit led me to was Colorado, which at the time made no sense. But five years later, it saved my life. Well, if somebody isn't used to um, being quiet and, and listening for an answer from the inside, I mean, would you recommend a spiritual director to help them through that? Or like, how did you know? Did you have any other verifying things for yourself to... Because on the on the outside, if you said, well, I sat down on a rock for a while until I heard no, and then I, you know, turned down a great job offer, you know, obviously that's between you and God and it makes sense to you. But on the outside, people are going to think, are you okay, Larita? <laughs> yeah. So let me just say that I was the professor on campus known for telling students to do all their homework get online, get all the information, et cetera, and then go outside and sit under a tree and listen for an answer from the inside. Now, I know this sounds a little crazy, but it's almost as if I think people live, can live in different realms, right? Mm. And so we live in the world and oftentimes like to live um, under the operation of the the laws of the world. But at the same time, I think there's a spiritual overlay that we can tap into. So what I suggest to people is that you start with little decisions, like, do I need to eat this cookie right now? (laughs) Maybe I need to wait 30 minutes or something, right? Or, uh, you know, you might ask, uh, you you might hear, because a lot of times we get it, you know, we get instruction that we sometimes don't follow. Like Mm, somebody might say to you, uh, you might hear, you need to call your aunt Marie or your aunt, you know, whatever, right, Maddie. And so sometimes if you do that, Aunt Maddie is the person that either has a message for you or she needed to hear from you. So I think that if we just do those, follow those little times when we hear something simple, like, you know, one time I I heard go to the health food store, right? And at the health food store was somebody who told me something that I needed to know to help me with a problem I was having. So it's it's just trying out little things. It, you know, you don't have to start out with a big decision like that. Obviously, you know, that that was a biggie. But I had been, you know, I, and I can't tell you when I started doing it. But, you know, somewhere along the line, I started learning that sometimes you need to offer up the decisions or you can ask for something. Right. You can you can ask for some help or you can say, God, please send me to my next assignment instead of you making a decision about the assignment. Mm. 
Um, I know that that was one of the things that happened to me when I moved from Colorado to Atlanta. I had gotten married and, you know, I was, you know, I was on leave. And but I, I, I knew I was not going to probably go back to Colorado. So my prayer that year was God send me to my next assignment. Mm. Right. Not, not that I was going to pick the most prestigious or the flagship campus of the you know, local university. And it was to a small women's college, Agnes Scott College in Atlanta. Um, and it was a wonderful decision. Um, I didn't even know about it before I moved here. You know, so sometimes um, uh, I think we are be beginning to be asked, are you willing to yield your will to some other will that might be in your best interests? So, so I always, I always say to people, just start out with little decisions. You know, um, you know, do I need to? Did I hear something about calling somebody, or was there something in a dream that told me that I should do such and such? I mean, I think we get get lots of guidance all the time. We just ignore it. Oh yeah, it's kind of the, it's kind of that quiet, whis mm -hmm. the whispers of God, maybe the those quiet suggestions that you. You know, you're like, yeah, I don't know if I want to go with that. <laughs> the still quiet voice, the still mm -hmm. quiet voice. It's that little voice that's telling you, or sometimes, you know, it's trying to keep you out of some danger. I've had, you know, that voice tell me, you don't need to go down that street today, right? Or I'm about to do something really bad. And I, I feel like I have this, I call her my angel, um, my angel named Gertrude. She's the angel of needless suffering. Oh. <laughs> so that when I'm ready to do something really stupid or really bad <laughs> she will scream at me <laughs> uh, seriously like for example the night of my uh the night before my transplant i had um gotten in the bed i was really tired because i was obviously in in and out of heart failure and um i i was laid out about to go to sleep and this little voice said where's your beeper because i had a beeper at that point mm. and so i was like oh don't know where the beeper is. I'm asleep. I'm tired. I can't. And so then it came back a little louder and said, where's the beeper? And I was turned over and you know, ignoring it. And it, it screamed, get up and find the beeper. Right? <laughs> and my, my beeper's attached to my purse on the floor in the living room somewhere. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, go, I get it and trudge back up the stairs, throw the purse on the floor and go to sleep. It beats that night. Oh. And usually they call you first, but I had turned off the ringer to my phone, which you're wow. not supposed to. Um, oh. and, and so, you know, I'm just saying that it's there. Um, and, it, and the more we use it, the better it gets. It's like mm. exercise. Yeah. So, so I could give you, you know, so many uh, <laughs> examples, but I, I just think that when you start moving with spirit, instead of trying to figure out everything yourself, and that's why I call it inner authority with caps, you can move through all kinds of, you know, you can, you can ask for help getting out of a bad job or abusive relationship, or maybe you want to go do something that your parents, you know, like you, you, you want to go do music, but your parents want you to go to law school or whatever. You know, those are the times when you can, you know, say, I need some help. Help me do this, right? And if, in fact, that is your calling, all the stuff that you need to do that will fall into place. So it's a really, um, you know, I, it's just a, a, a matter of beginning to... To, to live more from your spirit than your flesh, if you want to use those terms. Um, and I think that that really is what we are called on the spiritual journey to do, to move more and more into um, knowingness, you know, God's knowingness or spiritual knowingness, and to, to um, depend less on that little ego voice that says, oh, no, you don't want to do this, and, you know, the bad things are going to happen, you know, all that, right? Yeah, yeah. That's really encouraging. I'm going to be releasing this near Christmas time, and I know you had some things that you were going to share relating to Howard Thurman and his um, Christmas-related work. Maybe you can do a little introduction of what that is. Sure. So 
uh, he wrote a lovely book, and it's it's you know he he wrote meditations starting in 1944. Um, these I, they, they're sort of prose poetry, and um, there are some that are collected in a book called The Mood of Christmas and Other Celebrations, and it was originally published in 1973, although it's been reprinted a few times. But he writes in it that. Um, as human spirits, we need times of celebration to help us to know our significance in the continuity of life, in the flow of life in both a personal and collective way. This sense of continuity is the ultimate windbreak against the ever-present threat of isolation and separation from the surrounding environment. And so he says that there's something special about the atmosphere at Christmas. It's very unique and distinct from all other times of the year. And he he likes to highlight this uh, particular season because he says, we affirm our solidarity with the whole human race in its long struggle to become humane and to reveal the divinity in which all humankind shares. The lighting of candles, hanging of holiday de decorations, construction of creches, and preparing of festive meals as a special sparkle that lets us know it's Christmas and that it should be, you know, a time of celebration. He says also Christmas is a reminder that God has not left us alone in the darkness, but the spirit of light and the spirit of love that Jesus let loose in the world is ever present. So that Christmas is a time of hope, regardless of whether or not a person is Christian or non-Christian, cheerful or sad or strong or weak. It's about revisiting or renewing the notion of hope that the light, that's with the capital L, comes again and again into the darkness of the world. So, you know, he just he just really uh, exemplifies in this book, um, you know, different aspects of Christmas. And I just want to 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 uh, read this one little section at the beginning. It says, the symbol of Christmas, what is it? It is the rainbow arched over the roof of the sky when the clouds are heavy with foreboding. It is the cry of life in the newborn babe when forced from its mother's nest, it claims its right to live. It is the brooding presence of the eternal spirit making crooked paths straight, rough places smooth, tired hearts refreshed, dead hopes stirred with newness of life. It is the promise of tomorrow at the close of every day, the movement of life in defiance of death, and the assurance that love is sturdier than hate, that right is more confident than wrong, that good is more permanent than evil. Isn't that just such a lovely way to, you know, to talk about Christmas? Yeah, it's the kind of thing you, it would be great to read at a, a meal, you know, with the prayer and and your thanks, your your Christmas meal to to rem keep remembering what um, who who God is and who we are in the world too. Yes. Well, and he says, you know, and he reminds us in this book that Jesus was not born to wealthy parents or powerful parents, uh, and that you know he 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 represents the symbol of the dignity and inherent worthfulness of every person. Um, and that it is uh, important for, you know, all people to become aware of their true worthfulness and, um, you know, that and that they are holy children of God. And, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, Christmas, he says, comes again and again to remind us of that. So. Uh, can I read a couple of the uh, the meditations from oh, this? Yes, yes. Okay. So um, this one is called uh, Christmas is Waiting to be Born. It says, Christmas is waiting to be born. When refugees seek deliverance that never comes and the heart consumes itself, if it would live, where little children age before their time and life wears down the edges of the mind, where the old man sits with and grown cold, while bones and sinew, blood and cells go slowly down to death, where fear compassions each day's life and perfect love seems long today, delayed. Christmas is waiting to be born in you, in me, in all of humankind. So that's, that's one of them. And then the other one that I really like uh, uh, to read is uh, called The Work of Christmas. 
And it says, when the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flock, the work of Christmas begins to find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among brothers and sisters, to make music in the heart. So um, he's got those wonderful ones about waking up to the true meaning of Christmas. And he and he says that Christmas is also a time to share the graces of the world because, you know, so often, you know, we find the world so callous and insensitive and hard. And that this, you know, that if, if we could share these, these graces that we share at Christmas, um, it could become part of our, our everyday spirit. And then every day would be Christmas, right? Mm, yeah. um, and so uh, he really talks about, uh, uh, you know, grace. Um, and, and I'd like to just, if we have the time to just read a, a short one um, about the art of grace. Um, and um, in this particular one, he talks about, um, he says, again and again, we are impressed with the fact that little things can make a big difference. A little kind of little act of kindness at a moment of great need makes all the difference between sunshine and shadows. A smile at the right moment may make an intolerable burden lighter. Just a note bearing a message of simple interest or concern or affection may give to another the radically needed assurance. A simple thank you has softened many a hard situation or punctured the crust of many a hard-boiled person. There is also and always a place for the graceful gesture, the thoughtful remark, the sensitive response. It is what may be called, quote, living flexibly. There is often confusion between formality and ungraciousness or informality and graciousness. One may be gracious without fawning and affectation. There is no greater compliment to be given than to say, you are very kind. To know you is to make life itself a more satisfying experience. This means that such a person has learned or developed or been born with the fine art of gracious living. It is the antidote to much of the crudeness and coarseness of modern life. Our reputation for bad manners and for rudeness is unenviable. The derogatory names that we use to tag other peoples and other races, the supercilious flippancy used as the common coin of daily intercourse, all these things reflect a carelessness in living that hurts and bruises, often where there is no intent to injure and destroy. It is true that li- little things often make the big difference. So I, I, I love the fact that he tries to remind us that the graces that we sometimes may extend only at Christmas, it would be nice if we were to extend those to others you know, throughout the year because it would certainly create a different hey, mood at Christmas, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and and just even to be reminded that little kindnesses add up to a, a life of of graciousness to because um, sometimes we think, well, you know, I'm not it's it's not a big deal this thing or that thing, but when you are looking for ways to be kind you'll have a life of kindness and I think he he, Dr. Thurman is so good at was it inspiring our better better angels or however that turn of phrase is that you know you you want to he wants us to be our best selves and then you hear him and then you want to be your best self yes Yes. And, and, and I, I think it's, it's, if it would be lovely if we had more people who could take that mantle on, right. And to say, I have a choice in this moment. And so what am I going to do? Am I going to offer the love that, that Jesus tried to inspire in everybody? Or am I going to, you know, do the eye for eye or tooth for tooth thing? I think it's just another opportunity for us to share that kind of, 
indwelling of the spirit with other people, because that that is that impulse for us to have hope and to have and, and, and to be kind and loving and gentle to other people. So, uh, yes, he, he's such a wonderful model for that because and in and, and, and the people that knew him and, and talked with him, they said he was always such a kind, peaceful gentleman for the most part. I mean, you know, I don't you know, there were there are a few times when there were things that happened that obviously angered him. But he just happened to have and I think that that presence that he had comes from all of that contemplative prayer or taking time for quiet where he was able to allow more and more of the spirit to sort of take over and and to and to be part of who he was yeah i'm i'm wondering if i can ask you uh, are there spiritual practices besides quieting down and being in nature that are particular prayers or spiritual practices that you do to make sure that you can get to a quiet place in yourself that isn't anxious? Well, I certainly go, I just, I just had a silent retreat last week. So mm. that's always mm-hmm. wonderful. But I, I, you know, and you can actually take a silent retreat at home, turn off all the televisions, radios, um, and de- electronic devices. I was actually at a retreat center where I had no connection. And so I was off the grid for a week. And and I, I, I realized how cluttered my mind was. It's like the, the, the mind that doesn't have all of that clutter, you know, that thinking about this, that, or the other is just so peaceful and serene. So I would recommend that if you can't go on a silent retreat, that you create a silent retreat in your own home, especially during the holidays, right? When people get beyond themselves with, with worry and concern. I also think that mantras are important, positive mantras. So, you know, to, to repeat something like um, peace be still, particularly during the holidays, or, you know, let me remember that I am one with God. Those are the kinds of things that if, you know, you continue to say them over and over um, are, are, are vital. In addition to, you can also take what my friend Kirk Byron Jones calls our pause pockets throughout the day. Mm. You know, just pause for a minute and and collect yourself and ask yourself, so what am I feeling right now? Am I feeling peace? Am I feeling joy? What's gone awry in the last few moments? Um, you know, what what do I need to, is, is there something in my mind that I need to change so that I can re- restore myself back to some peace? Or is there something that I need to eliminate off the schedule? You know, we particularly at Christmas time, we think we have to do all these things. When in fact, what I think people want the most at Christmas time is connection. You know, that doesn't take a lot of running around. So certainly, uh, you know, taking those pause pockets, I think, are important. And then I think it's really important for us to to check in with our spiritual selves and say, what is it that I need, uh, you know, to be fed today? And it's not always something religious. It may be that you want to go to a movie or you want to go to an antique shop and just look around, or you might want to go to a concert and listen to, you know, some music or listen to some music in your house. So, and so, and I think all of those things are spiritual. I mean, it, you know, it's not like this is secular and this is spiritual. That they, if they're feeding your spirit, then they're spiritual. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We can wind up prioritizing things like, oh, well, if it's not church related, then somehow it doesn't count. But I think God is delighted if we um, we feel more connected with ourselves and uh, yes. you know at peace. That's not upsetting to God in any way. Yeah, you know, oftentimes I will ask people, so how's your spiritual life? And they said, so do you mean when's the last time I went to church? I said, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. No, just what's your connection like? I mean, how are you feeling? You know, so I think uh, people get those things confused. And sometimes our spirit may be calling us to go in the kitchen and bake something. You know, I mean, it's, part of it is the creative 
part two? I mean, I know that uh, I'm, I'm a person who likes to sew. And if I go long periods of times without sewing, I can feel it. It's like, oh, something's not right. So, so it's part of that creative flow. So what can you do, you know, whether it's journaling or writing poetry or reading some nice novel, all those things can feed your spirit. Wonderful. This has been so fun, and I, I really just appreciate connecting with you and uh, having you on the program. Thank you so much. You are so welcome, and I hope and I want to encourage people to, um, if they can, to get the mood of Christmas and other celebration. Howard Thurman talks about New Year's and sort of letting the old year go and beginning the new year. Um, and in some of his publications, he's got a few um, Thanksgiving, um, you know, thankfulness kind of uh, meditations. But he's just such a wonderful resource for um, many spiritual things, but but just things that are inspiring that make you, like you said, make you want to go be a better person or live a different kind of life. So I appreciate you inviting me on to talk about him because I think he's one of our less well-known treasures. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's great. It would be. It's something that I would like to add more to um, to read some of his work at different times. We gather at the table uh, to mm-hmm. to bring out some of his work and read it. To just just kind of instead of just hurrying through a prayer of our own, just sit back a little bit, just wait a little bit longer for the food, yes. <laughs> and yes. uh, and read something like that to to take us in yes. a different direction. I think it'd be a great idea. So, yes. yeah, thank you. Now, do you want to tell um, everybody where they can find you? I know you're. Are you still available for spiritual direction? Uh, well, I'm actually getting very close to my max, but okay. I, I do a lot of referrals uh, for people uh, who are interested in spiritual directors. Uh, the Spiritual Directors International has a wonderful website, sdiworld.org, where you can actually go on to any part of the country. They have a, a map and, and look for local spiritual directors in your area. Uh, but I do most of my work um, on peaceforhearts.com. Uh, where I I blog as well as um, on uh, Peaceful Hearts on Facebook and Twitter as well. Um, And uh, I also post, you know, events that I'll be doing around the country at some point. So, um, yes, I highly recommend that and and recommend that, you know, during this uh, holiday season, people find ways to to, to feel the joy of the season um, and to feel the connection of the season that I think it's calling us to. 